Hey, Miles. Oh, hey, man. What's bugging you? I have some questions uh, about the Juggernaut. Yeah, that happens. What do you need? Uh, Okay, first of all, is he a mutant? Sometimes. Sometimes. Well, it's inconsistent. So, for example, in 616, he generally isn't a mutant, but sometimes writers forget. And in X-Men Evolution, he wouldn't have been a mutant, but the Gemocide Rack activated and enhanced his latent mutant powers instead of giving him mystical abilities, you know, and so forth. Ciderac. Ancient god of destruction, banished to another dimension, lingering artifactual ties to Earth-616, most significantly the Crimson Bands, which are what grant the wearer the powers of the Juggernaut. So it's not always Cain Marco? No, uh, it was Colossus for a while, I think actually pretty recently. And there's also a what-if story where Xavier is the Juggernaut. Do Charlie and Kane always have that rivalry thing going? Eh, kinda. In Age of Apocalypse, Kane actually goes full-on pacifist after Xavier's death, even though he does have the Juggernaut powers in that universe. And the rest of the universes? Eh, business as usual, mostly. Juggernaut does crimes and or comes after Xavier. Xavier uses the X-Men to stop him. Oh, except for Earth-10724. 10724? 10724? That's X-Campus. It's a short-lived 2010 series that recasts X-Men as a school story. It's basically X-Men Evolution 10 years later. Well, a different school story. And Xavier and Juggernaut are on the same side? Oh, God, no. Xavier still sends the X-Men after him. It's just not for supervillainy. So what's he up to there? Uh, using the power of the Juggernaut to cheat at minor league football. What? I'm J. Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 103 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So before we dive on in, we want to tell you about a thing. We do, because next weekend, as this goes up, is Emerald City Comic Con. It is in Seattle. It is April 7th through 10th, and we are going to be there all weekend. We will be tabling in Artist's Alley with artist David Wynn, whose art you might be familiar with from the show or from a number of comics and awesome stuff he's done online and in print. I believe we will be at table L18, but you might want to double check that in the program. We've also got a number of panels. I think I'm on a bunch. The podcast relevant one, though, is on Friday at 5.30 p.m., and we are going to be recording a live episode with special guests Christopher Anka, Scott Koblish, and G. Willow Wilson. Yes, indeed, of Uncanny X-Men and X-Men 92, respectively. And the next day, Saturday, the 9th, off-site, and I will say this latter is an event that does not require an Emerald City badge. We are going to be having a listener meetup and party. It is going to be hosted by Seattle's own Phoenix Comics and Games. Just a short walk from the convention center. It is from 7 to 9 p.m. on the Saturday of Emerald City Comic Con. And if you are interested in attending, we will have all of the information for that up on our website all week. Yes, come hang out with us. We can talk about X-Men and... I don't know, airplanes or rainbows or whatever, really. We've also got a couple of really exciting things happening. You can buy objects from us. We will have print copies of the J.N. Miles Explain the X-Men zine. We will have t-shirts. We will have a ton of buttons. We will also have a con exclusive. Now, as you may know, if you listen to the podcast, you all won awards. You are all winners of the Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Award for Excellence at Excellence as the best listeners of any podcast ever. And we have made Fiscal Corbeau Awards for you. They are small. They're badge pins. But they won't be on the list. They won't be out on the table. If you come up to us and say, I am a listener, I would like my Corbeau Award, we will give you one. At the party, we're also going to have things like the traditional bowl of sunglasses. Just, you know, take a bite, take a couple. Yeah, they're, they're delicious um, and nutritious. This is what happens to all of the sunglasses that I wear on the video reviews because there are so many of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. 
previous ones have been pretty cool. I think this is the third official meetup we've ever done. And we're really looking forward to it. We're really looking forward to seeing and meeting you. We're really, really looking forward to doing a live episode with Chris Scott and Willow, who are all fantastic. Hopefully we will see you there. Now, however... Excalibur. Excalibur. Oh, man. So we did The Sword is Drawn already. That was the graphic novel that started Excalibur off. That was our last Giant Size special, I believe. It was. In fact, it was the same episode as the Corbo Awards. Yes, that you indeed. Won. So now we're going to check out the first few issues of Excalibur. But first, previously on Excalibur. I would do that in a British accent, but I can't do a British accent. Right. And again, and I feel like we're going to give this disclaimer every time we do Excalibur. We do not do accents other than our own because we're not that great at them. And also it's distracting. And yeah. So Captain Britain, he did a lot of things. He was in comics for like a couple decades before The Sword is Drawn. In like seven different anthology titles. He survived the Jasper's Warp. He helped Captain UK take out the Fury. He met Megan, who was a creepy furry changeling lady who turned into a super hot changeling lady. Now they live in a lighthouse that they bought with stolen Inca gold. More recently than that, after the stuff that we covered in the two Captain Burton episodes we did that we just talked about, he has been guest starring in Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants annuals because Chris Claremont and Alan Davis love getting together to draw Captain Burton and Megan. Good, because they're so good at it. Um, They are. Now, what we saw in Excalibur, the Sword is Drawn, Six Calibur Special Edition, is that Nightcrawler and Shadowcat, who were away from the X-Men on Muir Island, recuperating from injuries that they sustained during the mutant massacre, and Phoenix, who had left the X-Men and was running around in the Mojoverse and then escaped from it, met up with Captain Britain and Megan. They all teamed up to take on Warwolves who were coming after Phoenix, and they decided that they should stick together as a team. And that team and the ongoing series that they have now launched is Excalibur. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Excalibur as a comic because it looked a bit different than most comics at the time. It's extra fancy. It's extra shiny. At this point, this is 1988, right? 1989. 1989. Most comics are still being printed on newsprint. Excalibur is not. Excalibur is being printed on glossy paper, and it is coming out ad-free with a slightly higher cover price than the contemporary X-Books. Yeah, it also had sort of a pinup on the back of every issue on the back cover, and usually those things were awesome. I remember there's one with Kitty half-phased through a circuit board working on it, hanging out with Lockheed. That's like my favorite Kitty Pride picture ever. Yeah, they're all really fun, man. Alan Davis... Fun is an adjective that is going to come up a lot when we talk about Excalibur, because Excalibur is the fun book of the line. We've talked about X-Men as being a roiling mass of angst and soap opera and trauma, and that's been a lot of what we've been seeing. Excalibur has those components, but they're not what drives it. Excalibur is a romp. Through dimensions and countries and realities and all sorts of things. One of the first arcs, I mean, literally, the word caper is in its title. It's oh, the, the cross-time the cross time caper. caper, yeah. Oh yeah, we'll be getting to that in a little bit. But Excalibur is delightful, and it's not only that way narratively, it's that way tonally, and Alan Davis's art is so just exultant and bright. I mean, the colors are bright, the lines are clean, and even everyone looks really happy a lot of the time. Except when they look super angsty, but it's okay, they'll probably be really happy later, but then they'll be angsty again. It's Excalibur, these things happen. Yeah, man, Excalibur was one of the first ongoing X-books that I read in its entirety. And the Alan Davis run of it... For me, for we've talked a lot about artists and our definitive artists for specific characters and how that relates to the artists we saw first draw them and the ways they drew them and so forth. So, for example, like Havoc for me in my head is drawn by Neil Adams. Yeah, totally. If a character appears in early Excalibur, their ideal in my head version is drawn by Alan Davis. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the case for me with especially Shadowcat, Rachel Summers, and Nightcrawler. Yeah, absolutely. And unquestionably. Mm -hmm. And come to think of it, Captain Britain and Megan, because he drew them Mm -hmm. in the previous... Anyway, the point is Alan Davis is definitive for all of these characters for us. 
I don't know to what extent it's because the lineup are just characters who fit really well, or if they'd pulled in other characters, whether those would have become my definitive visual versions as well. But either way, it's such an unlikely team, and it's such a good team, narratively in terms of characters, but also creatively. Like, this is just such a good matchup. So, yeah, we've established the team meeting up, hanging out in England, establishing themselves as a team, and the sword is drawn. So that means that unlike most number ones, this number one can just get to the team doing team stuff, kind of like New Mutants in that regard. That brings us to Excalibur number one, the Warwolves of London. Because of course it's called that. This opens with a character who is left over from both the sword is drawn and previous Captain Britain stuff. This is Tweedledope of the Crazy Gang. The Crazy Gang are a vaguely Alice in Wonderland themed supervillain lineup. They're a little bit incompetent. They try really hard. They will clash with Excalibur a fair lot. Tweedledope is one of them. They were created by James Jaspers during the Jaspers Warp and managed to stick around after the end of the Warp and after Jaspers was killed, trying to figure out what to do with themselves. What Tweedledope is currently doing is cramming a bunch of random junk into a round metal thing. It's it's sort of spherical. It looks like it's maybe kind of a head, but it's hollow. He's just pouring things into it, shaking them, tasting the results, and then wandering off. And I really love that he's just sort of laughing and making noises to himself the entire time. And man, the lettering in this is actually a lot of fun as well. And this is where it really shines. Now, this sort of metal cartoon frog head thing, we've seen before, specifically we've seen it on the back cover of The Sword is Drawn. It's this kind of metal, bug-eyed, smiley face, and it wasn't in The Sword is Drawn at all, but here it is for the first time. This, we will eventually learn, is Widget. Widget is important, Widget has a lot going on, but for now, Widget is mostly going to be a catalyst to plot. And that catalyst is catalyzed... I'm going to say those are words. Yeah, why not? Uh, I mean, they're both technically words. I'm not sure they're words quite in the context or way that you mean them, but they are words. (laughs) When after Tweedledope wanders off, Widget's eyes ping open with a nice ping sound effect. And that leads us to our actual plot. But I really enjoy the fact that the first scene in the Excalibur ongoing series is this what the hell is going on scene right here. Excalibur is a cold open of cold opens. It kind of is, yeah. But the actual action is happening, and I quote, Some 500 miles roughly southward in the haunted capital of this haunted realm. Dude, Claremont is having so much fun with the narration in this entire series. So in London, Captain Britain, Shadowcat, and Phoenix, this is the Rachel Summers Phoenix, and she's in the red spiky costume, are helping Inspector Di Thomas, who's a policeman who we first met in Captain Britain, and the police with a hostage situation, and they are clearly having a really good time with it. And it's so good to see that happening, because, I mean, Kitty has mostly been, you know, moping over the fact that half the people she loves are dead, and getting to see her just as a superhero in a brightly colored costume hanging out with other superheroes, it's such a relief. As a silly superhero, too, what she manages to do is defuse the hostage situation by phasing through a wall with Phoenix in hand and a sheet over her head and convincing the criminals that they're ghosts who've come for them. You will be cast from the world of men into the abyssal shadow realms of eternal torment. Oh man, Kitty trying to be dramatic is so great because she is habitually pretty bad at it. Oh, but she's having so much fun with it. And to be fair, she is coming through a wall wearing sheets. I mean, even if she's talking in super dorky ways, she's scary. Do you ever get the feeling that if this kid hadn't become a superhero, she would have like channeled that into being a really hardcore LARPer? Yeah, no question. Her and Doug Ramsey, that's like all they would do. Aw. So before this happens, though, Kitty and Rachel have a brief conversation with a policeman. Not only any policeman, this policeman gets a name and a backstory in the captions, which, as you should know by now, means that he is super doomed. Ray Mulholland, good man, good cop, husband, and father, with all the dreams a man can have, some fulfilled, most not, but he never minded, that's the way life is, 
You play the hand you're dealt. In a twinkling, in a trice, that's all stripped from him. So there's nothing left of substance. There's only the shell. And he is jumped by a werewolf. So the werewolves are these kind of silvery, vaguely canine-looking creatures. They look like they're kind of made of liquid metal, like the T-1000. They were sent as hunters after Phoenix, and the sword is drawn, like we said. But despite how bestial they look, they have more human personalities. They're sentient, they're a bit silly, they hang out and drink beer. But their MO as hunters is to find people to suck out their essence and to wear their skins as skin suits. And they shapeshift to fit the skins when they're wearing them, but they can't shapeshift on their own. They need a skin to contain them. They kind of remind me of those weird farting aliens from early new Doctor Who, the ones yeah, with the really got, long names. Yeah, they've got a bit of that to them, yeah. So, yeah, this guy is uh, gone. But I gotta say, so the Claremont narration you just did, ever since we interviewed him in number 100, I just am hearing all of his captions in that kind of, like, deliberate, enthusiastic cadence he has. Yeah, the thing with these, and the thing that I've also noticed, and I'd like to see how this plays out statistically, is that the volume of description for those NPCs directly correlates to the odds of them dying horribly within a few pages. Oh man, so if you're in a Claremont comic, you want him to not even comment on you? Yeah, and the more poignant they are, the more sympathetic you are, the more likely you are to, you know, have an alien spaceship land on you or get skinned by a werewolf or whatever. Now, Kitty and Rachel manage to take care of the bank hostage situation. Captain Britain doesn't trust them to and bursts in just as they're wrapping up. And we also meet another minor character at this point, who is a gentleman by the name of Nigel Frobisher. Yeah, he was one of the hostages in this bank situation. And man, he is super douchey. Like, he's got that swoopy Alan Davis hair, but somehow, instead of making him look awesome and happy, and in a shampoo commercial, it just makes him look like a dick. Yeah, we talked some last episode about villains and queer and feminine coding in male villains, and I feel like there's some of that coming into play with Nigel, which is kind of funny because one of his defining characteristics is he's a super sleazy womanizer at this point. But um, that seems to be a thing here, and I think is going to become more of a thing with him a little bit later on in Excalibur. Know who he reminds me of? Who? Ellis from Die Hard. Yeah, yeah, okay, I can see that. He's the character who's harmless but awful, who just sort of exists for you to hate him. Yeah, like with a really punchable face, basically. So he's going to go off and do lines in the bathroom? I'm assuming so. Okay. And then try to sell the good guys out to the bad guys and then get shot. You know how it goes. I mean, he does try to sell the good guys out to the bad guys later. (laughs) That's true. Like, Nigel does do this. Oh, well, there you go, him and Ellis. Yeah, so what he does is to hit really hard on Rachel Summers. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that because when we first saw Rachel Summers, she was coming from this horrible post-apocalyptic future. She was kind of emaciated. She had her hair buzzed really short. She was not shown as a confident character, and she was also not shown as an attractive character, which in comics is kind of a rarity. At this point, she looks and comes across completely differently. I mean, same personality, but her persona, her appearance, her bearing, it's all totally different. We saw at the end of The Sword is Drawn her basically deciding, you know, I don't have access to all of my memories. My past is a mess. I'm just going to be who I want to be now. Yeah, and I guess when you have the godlike power of the phoenix coursing through your veins, and according to Chris Claremont in that interview, through your genetics— You can do that. You can make that kind of a radical change. And so here we have a phoenix who is extremely conventionally attractive and extremely confident. Well, there's also whatever happened to her in Spiral's body shop. Yeah, when she was taken to the Mojoverse. I mean, she's larger, she's stronger. So she's got that stuff going on, too. She's got a power mullet now instead of the rat tail. Yes. In the words of one of the bank robbers as they drag her off at one point, Coo, Reg, she ain't half a looker, which I guess is how British people talk. I have no idea how accurate the British slang in this is or isn't. 
it reads oddly to me, but I don't know if that's because I'm unfamiliar with it or because it is, in fact, the equivalent of grown-up trying to write cool teenagers. Oh, man, like Stan Lee or Bob Haney and Teen Titan style? Yes, British readers, please come by. Let us know how this stuff reads to you, especially if you were reading it as it was coming out, because our frame of reference is skewed. Okay, as this all is going on, the werewolves are continuing to take more skins. They find this sort of uh, snappily, colorfully dressed couple, and so now three of them have skins. But what's going on back at home after this heist is done is that Kitty is kind of processing a lot of the shit that she's gone through when she's been mostly off camera because she hasn't been a main character in comics for a while. And she's in very quick succession lost a lot of people who are very, very important to her. Doug Ramsey, her best friend, died suddenly while she was away in New Mutants. And then the X-Men, who were basically her family, save for her and Kurt, and Rachel, who as far as she knew at that point was also gone, were all apparently killed in Dallas. And so she's surrounded by newspaper articles and photographs of her and Doug, of a letter from Doug's family, of the X-Men in Dallas from the news report, and starts thinking to herself about all of this. Always figured we X-Men led charmed lives, that no matter what, we'd pull through, live forever. Silly girls hope that. Joke sure was on me, and you, Doug Ramsey, determined to pull your own weight with the new mutants, even if it killed you. Darn you, darn you all, this isn't fair! In our time, we faced the worst villains in the world, in the universe, and beat them all. How is it the heroes die while they remain? And as she's thinking this to herself, there's this great kind of illustration, this almost montage around her of all the different villains that she's faced, of the inner circle of the Hellfire Club and their terrible battle costumes, of Ogun from the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries, Lalandra, Belasco, Mojo, and the Brood. This is the mechanics of comics in a nutshell. Characters go through unspeakable traumas that you, reader can see awesome visual montages. It's interesting that they choose Lalandra as a villain here, but I guess to Kitty Pride she kind of would be, because she was the one responsible for Jean's death, as far as Kitty knows. Now, Kitty can't brood for long, because this isn't X-Men or X-Factor or New Mutants, this is Excalibur, and so Brian Braddock, Captain Britain, comes in, very Natalie attired, and sees if she wants some tea, and just sort of checks in with her. Yeah, and Brian, like Kitty, was a teenage electronics whiz, and so they sort of connect over that, and he invites her to come into town with him and Rachel, and they are headed to somewhere called Fraser's Bank. This is the first place where we get to see the new civilian Rachel Summers. Initially, she wore basically just really battered fatigues and then awesome 80s butch suits. Oh, don't forget her uh, leotards and leg warmers that she wore for a while. That wasn't casual. That was her costume for a while. That was what she wore to superhero. I can't argue with that logic. What she is wearing now is an amazing, like, red leather mini dress and biker jacket with hella shoulder pads. You say mini dress, but mini dress really doesn't get across just how mini this dress is. No, it's a mini dress. You know, she makes it work. She's telekinetic. She can pull off whatever she wants. And there's actually a great bit where, again, Nigel is there and doesn't recognize her, but it's hitting on her aggressively. And Captain Britain has a moment of, well, maybe I should tell her to cover up, but no, this dude's just being a douche. Thank you, Captain Britain. We appreciate your remarkably progressive stance on this matter. Yes, and Rachel is, of course, able to take care of herself because she briefly flares up the Phoenix Raptor to knock Nigel Frobisher on his ass, which maybe is overkill, but to be fair, he's totally a douchebag. I gotta tell you, I really love the gives-no-fucks era of Rachel Summers. Oh yeah, I also love that when Nigel does fall on his ass when she knocks him over, his little speech bubble sound effect is oink. Well, previously, before they come in, what we see him doing is aggressively hitting on the receptionist who is responding to him coldly but politely. And then after every single word balloon, there's a little thought balloon that just says pig. Excalibur is, at this point, pretty lighthearted. And it's the kind of book where jerks take pratfalls a lot. Yeah. And Nigel Frobisher is a big jerk who takes a lot of pratfalls. A whole lot of pratfalls. 
And so the reason they're in this bank is because Captain Britain is meeting up with his old friend and his ex-girlfriend, Courtney Ross. Now, she was a major character back in the Captain Britain series way back in the day. In fact, before the stuff that we covered in our two Captain Britain episodes. The significant differences now are that she is a major executive at an international bank, and she is blonde with a spectacular Alan Davis swoop to her hair. Now, it sounds like I'm just talking about how she has cool hair, but this is actually a plot significant point. As is the fact that we find out that her auburn hair before had been dyed, that she is a natural blonde, because it's not commented on here, but she looks a lot like someone else we've seen Alan Davis draw. That being Opal Luna Saturnine, the omniversal magistrix, who's super awesome. And uh, that is no accident, and we're going to come way back to that later. Now, as you may recall, in The Sword is Drawn, the werewolves were, I believe, not captured. They got away. Yeah, they got away to lick their wounds. I think one or two of them died during The Sword is Drawn because they fought Technet, and you probably shouldn't do that. And they're presumably still out there hunting Phoenix. So Kitty, who is frustrated, who has lost more team members and close friends than she cares to count, decides she's going to take preemptive action. What she's been tinkering with is a module that will change her energy pattern to reproduce phoenixes. She dresses up in Rachel's costume. She hennas her hair to make it look redder, braids it back to imitate the power mullet, and staggers off in Rachel's improbable heels. And I love the way she's drawn right here. Because, you know, Rachel's drawn as this sort of voluptuous, idealized, sexy adult woman, and Kitty looks like she has the body of a slightly awkward teenager. I mean, to be fair, it's a comic book version of a slightly awkward teenager. But still, the distinction is noticeable and really contributes. She looks like she's wearing someone else's costume. So I've talked about Alan Davis and costume design before, and I've talked about the fact that Alan Davis draws fabric. This is really, really rare among superhero costumes. Most superhero costumes are basically a naked body with seam lines and coloring. You know, artists draw muscles, artists draw breasts, artists draw bodies, but fabric texture and fit isn't generally a component of them. And that's sometimes the case with Alan Davis costumes, but not always. And one of the things that he does a lot, because there's a lot of costume swapping that goes on in Excalibur, is that he draws characters wearing each other's clothing and makes it fit differently on the different characters, makes, makes the fabric work differently with different bodies, which I'm highlighting both because he does it well and because it is tremendously, tremendously rare in superhero books. So Kitty's gone off disguised as Rachel to track down some werewolves. Rachel and Brian are off in the bank hanging out with Courtney Ross and uh, getting hit on, irrespectively. So that just leaves two characters we haven't really seen much of yet, that being Nightcrawler and Megan. Nightcrawler has the best casual clothes in this series. Speaking of Alan Davison fabric, man, he is still rocking turtlenecks. He has upgraded from his beanie to a captain's hat at this point. He looks so good. He really does. Kurt, you are a stylish man and fuzzy. Right. And Megan agrees to an extent, but man, not as much as Kurt agrees that Megan is quite a lady. The whole Kurt as a ladies man thing that we've seen before with him with Amanda Sefton or the damsel like princess he helped uh, get out of Murder World that one time. Yeah, we're seeing that right here. But regardless, he's also a respectful gentleman, which I respect about him. So and he a good, take that and too a good far. friend. Yeah. So yeah, he and Megan are in, well, England, like everybody else is, but they're at the lighthouse, the one that Captain Britain and Megan bought with that stolen Inca gold from that time with Gatecrasher and the time travel and stuff. Man, that was so iffy. Megan's like, hey, Excalibur needs a base if we're going to be a superhero team. What about this lighthouse? I haven't told Captain Britain, but I'm sure it'll be fine. It will be fine. Five people can definitely live in this small lighthouse together. 
just fine. It'll be great. There's one bathroom that's more than enough. And she's showing him around, and God, I love the character interaction. Like, we talk about comics where every pair of characters works well, and Excalibur is totally one of them. Oh, absolutely. And so, you know, she's showing him, for instance, the bedroom, and they've got this big round bed, her and Captain Britain, and Nightcrawler's like, Unglaublich! Now that is what I call a bed! And it's not for you. <sighs> story of your life, Nightcrawler. The it's bed's true. not for you. It's true. The story <laughs> of Nightcrawler's life is almost getting the girl. And so, yeah, he's exploring around a little more to see this place that's going to be his new home and checks out the basement. Megan said it's just a storage room. He opens a door and finds himself in, like, this interdimensional sci-fi medieval court full of monsters and aliens and fancy uniforms who immediately look at him, blink a couple times, and attack. He closes the door, he tells Megan what's been going on, they head back down, and nope, it's just a perfectly normal storage room. A perfectly normal storage room. Hint, if you are in an Excalibur book and something is a perfectly normal blank, no, no it really isn't. There's something going on there because everything is weird and great in Excalibur. They head back to London, to Brian's place, where everyone is currently staying. Megan once again demonstrates, Megan has basically learned about person stuff from TV, which is why she thinks it's appropriate to bust in on people in the bath, because she watches Dynasty, where apparently Joan Collins spends a lot of time in bubble paths and people come in to have conversations with her. That's all I know about Dynasty. I mean, yeah, that me too, pretty much. Um, I'm assuming that's the only thing that ever happens in Dynasty. That's what the show's yeah, about. Yeah, it is. I have a very specific idea of what Dynasty is like based on the things that Megan does based on it. But this also kind of makes me wonder what Megan would have turned out like if she'd grown up in a slightly different media landscape. Uh-huh. Because my main busting in on people in the bathroom context right now is don't trust the be in apartment 23, which is very different. Oh, I can only imagine. I think that would not go well. I mean, it's a great show. <laughs> Not a great way to learn. I know, actually, I think I feel like Megan would, would really click with June as a character. <laughs> well, anyway. They have a lot in common. Kurt gets over his embarrassment. They're and, both very uh, sincere. Kurt gets over his embarrassment and heads out of the bath to find Megan watching TV. And one of the things that I think is a cool little touch is that she's watching, among other shows, Wild Ways, which is that show that Mojo ran and that one X-Men annual or New Mutants annual, New whichever Mutants it annual was. Mutants annual is how he lured the New Mutants into the Mojoverse. Yeah, which I think is a nice little touch. And he wanders into the workshop where Kitty was working, knows enough about Alexa electronics because everyone always forgets kurt's really good with machinery to figure out what she's doing and says holy crap kitty must be trying to impersonate rachel to find the werewolves on her own that's a terrible idea now kitty assumes that she must be invulnerable to them because obviously she can just phase her default state is phased right now she is wrong luckily for her Kurt is able to call the rest of Excalibur together in time for Rachel to make psychic contact with Kitty just as she encounters the other werewolves and they attack her and she discovers that in fact she cannot phase away from them. Now, Rachel has been getting flashes all issue when the werewolves attack someone of Psyche's briefly flaring in panic and being snuffed out. And that now is what she gets from Kitty while they are in telepathic contact. And so, yeah, that starts this gigantic chase all across London with Excalibur going after the Warwolves, who themselves have a semi-conscious Kitty Pride sort of completely paralyzed on one of their backs. And it's kind of great. I mean, the series, and Alan Davis in particular, does madcap chases quite well. And also set dressing. And man, the Warwolves are fun because the Warwolves are basically people. Like, they're weird looking. They look like weird canids made out of liquid metal, but they hang out and drink beers. They have a bunch of, like, werewolf posters and pop culture stuff and comfy chairs in their hideout. Oh, they have a Lon Chaney, like, actor-director's chair in their hideout. Of course they do. They bug each other about hanging up their skins. Yeah, those are your skins. Hang them up properly this instant. As they're all splitting, like, a six-pack of beer after this chase. They're just sort of, you know, dudes. 
they realized quickly that not only is Kitty not Phoenix, but she's not even really that good an imitation on close inspection. And they decide, well, you know, at least we can always use an extra skin. Just as one of them is about to do the thing where a werewolf hollows a person out to take their skin, Kitty kind of vanishes in this big puff of energy. What the werewolves do is basically suck people's psyches and core and most of their bodies out, just sort of in a sudden flash. A werewolf tries to do this with Kitty, and she just sort of vanishes in a puff, and it thinks maybe it swallowed her. But it hasn't, and there's no skin for it to wear, and it's not quite sure what's going on. Something is not quite right, but it doesn't have time because the werewolves are now themselves being tracked. Kurt is rapidly captured by another werewolf. Megan is able to sort of shift into kind of a semi-wolf form and use her tracking abilities. And Rachel is incapacitated by apparently feeling her best friend die. So they manage to track down the werewolves, but by the time they do, something is very, very wrong. The one that ate Kitty is feeling sick, it's confused, its body is starting to sort of contract and bloat in strange ways, and what's happening is that it's gradually becoming kind of kitty-shaped. It appears to be growing hair almost, still, you know, made of the same shiny silvery stuff, but it's starting to look more and more like a sort of unpainted miniature of Kitty Pride. And I love the dialogue here as it says to itself, why doesn't anything ever go right for me? Another one responds, God hates you ducks. Why else? Man, the werewolves are salty. They are. And uh, yeah, so the one that's turning into Kitty, I guess it kind of feels weird being naked since it's, you know, more human looking now. So it actually puts on the red spiky Rachel Summers outfit. It tries to absorb the captured Kurt and it finds out that it can't. Whatever is going on, it is not werewolfing to its full werewolfy potential. It's around this time that the rest of Excalibur shows up on their rescue mission, and this fight scene is so much fun. I mean, you know, we tend not to talk much about the particulars of fight scenes, and we'll keep that going throughout Excalibur, but with this, it's just, you know, Kurt knocking a werewolf into the air to be hit by a teammate, and Kurt and Brian each punching a werewolf from opposite sides in the face. Excalibur fights are really boisterous. They are. Like, after that double punch thing, Kurt says, an inestimable right, Herr Braddock. Not a bad left yourself, Mr. Wagner. I think we made an impact. It's so much fun. And they very quickly win. I mean, there's really no contest when you have two-thirds of a pack of werewolves, one of whom is turning into somebody else against most of Excalibur. Even against one in particular of Excalibur, and that is Phoenix, whose immediate plan, because this is her solution to all substantial problems, is to kill them all as revenge for Kitty. Now, Kurt very quickly and easily manages to talk her down from this, because unlike Wolverine, whose response to an upset Phoenix is just to straight-up stab her, Kurt actually has social skills. I feel like Excalibur's a much better team for Rachel Summers to be on. Yes. <laughs> I feel like not on a team with Wolverine and maybe with like a vaguely stable home life and not fighting desperately for survival on the run in circumstances that remind her nonstop of her horribly traumatic childhood is a good team for Rachel Summers to be on. Well, I'm glad she's here. Right. Me too. So is Kitty. And in fact, Kitty is around to tell her that because the werewolf who has been turning into her suddenly sort of peels apart and a very angry, very naked Kitty Pride climbs out. Yeah, I love this. First body bag. Now this, so help me if I get swallowed by another critter. What it turns out is that she basically phased as the werewolf absorbed her. And the combination of her phasing and the fact that she was in telepathic contact with Rachel, who was sort of able to help her hold her psyche together, allowed her to pretty much survive getting absorbed by the werewolf and basically phase her way 
back out of it, like sort of semi-merge with it and then finally extricate herself. Now, this still leaves the question of what is to be done with the werewolves, and Kitty comes up with a novel and somewhat upsetting solution, which is to put them on display in the London Zoo. Yeah, and so, like, there's the werewolves in this big glass enclosure, and, like, a couple are watching TV, and one is smoking a pipe and reading the paper, sitting on a chair in the middle of the room, and there's a sign. London Zoo. Werewolves. Other dimensional origin. Genus unknown. Predator species. Extremely dangerous. Donated by Excalibur. You know, I really feel for the werewolves here. I feel like this falls fairly firmly under cruel and unusual punishment. I think it kind of does, but what gets me about this, like, how did that work? Excalibur shows up with these tied-up werewolves and is like, hey, we have these monsters. You want to just make an exhibit? I mean, what we've seen so far in Captain Britain and in Excalibur the Sword is Drawn is that the British authorities at this point are sort of exhaustedly matter-of-fact in their dealings with the supernatural. They know that they have to deal with this stuff, and they just kind of take it as read and go on with their lives. What I imagine the London Zoo actually did was look and go, oh my god, we could get so much more funding for conservation work. They're a great novelty. Let's put this together. (laughs) Well, that works for me. What are the ethics of allowing your zoo exhibits to smoke? I'm not really sure, yeah. And how does that change if they are sentient, which the werewolves are? I am uncomfortable with this, and I feel like it is probably a violation of some kind of international prisoner of war thing, given that the werewolves are, you know, extra-dimensional invaders. They are probably not actually British nationals. Well, regardless, they will eventually get out, so worry not. I think the next time we see them will be way later in Excalibur when they dress up as the X-Men to fight Excalibur. Later on, Roma sends them after Franklin Richards. Way after that, more recently, they show up in Claremont's Nightcrawler series. So, you know, they don't have to suffer this ignominy for too much longer. While Excalibur is fighting the werewolves in London, Widget, that odd little metal head, is hanging out in an old factory. It's near a henge of some sort. There's a henge nearby. Out in the sticks, there is a kid nearby named Colin. He's got sort of funny cat eyes, and he is playing with this metal head, talking about how much it sucks to be alone and hungry after being stolen from home. He has been stolen from home by Vixen. Vixen is a mobster and a villain, who we saw again first, I believe, in the Captain Britain series. She has very fancy pink hair, she has two very tall henchmen, and the three of them always wear matching outfits. It reminds me of people who dress up their tiny dogs. Yeah, except that instead of tiny dogs, she has enormous henchmen. Ah, potato, Um, potato. And today they're all in matching camouflage because they are hunting a child, which is a little bit (laughs) super screwed up. And Colin is desperate to get away from them. He, you know, asks for help, and Widget suspends itself in the air and forms a gate which Colin dives through with a cry of, oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow. Now, it seems at first that Colin is just one of those mini backstoried uh, Claremontian NPCs who we'll never see again, but we will totally see him again and it'll be way cooler than anyone would expect and also way weirder. Yeah, Colin is definitely going to be back and Widget is also going to be back. But first, Widget is found by another random passerby. This is a gentleman named Rupert Holloway. He is a fairly specific stereotype. He's wearing a jumpsuit that says, beam me up, Scotty. He's got a colander on his head. He is a UFO conspiracy theorist on the hunt for a UFO. He finds Widget and he immediately identifies that Widget must be extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional. He tells Widget that he is a friend. He can help it. And Widget responds, friend Colin, friend Rupert, friend safe, oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow. And opens a new portal because, you know, Widget's interpretation of friendship and what you do with friends is send them to other dimensions. Widget has a fairly simplistic understanding of what friendship means at this point. 
And so Rupert figures, well, hey, I'm going to go talk to all the alien bosses, presumably, through this weird portal. Of course I'm going to go through. But where he ends up is not where he expects. He's in sort of this barred window cell, like a really fancy prison cell. And there's a woman that we, as Captain Britain readers, or listeners to this show that listen to the Captain Britain episodes, will recognize. And if we don't, there's a caption to tell us. And across the omniverse, worlds shake and stars grow cold as Opal Loon Satire 9 greets her visitor with a smile. Now, Satire 9 came from Captain Britain. She is a former ruler of a, I think we described it as a crypto-Nazi sci-fi dystopic Earth. She has been recently unseated by the previously homeless Captain UK, who is now, I believe, running that Earth or at least serving as its champion. Satire 9 is going to pop up sooner, but we are not going to see Rupert again until Excalibur number 56. And in the meanwhile, he is not going to have a good time. No. So that basically is the first couple of issues worth of story. We've met Widget, who's doing things that seem to have nothing to do with the plot, but will totally pay off. Widget is going to eventually turn out to be a version of Kate Pride from Earth 811, that is the Days of Future Past feature, or at least her consciousness translated into this weird little metal dude at the moment of her apparent death in that future after she sent Rachel Summers back to the past. There's actually more to it than that, even, but that's kind of the crux of it. At this point, though, Widget is still kind of waking up. Oh, well, that was surprisingly concise. Just doing my job, sir. (laughs) Okay, so that takes us to the last issue we'll be covering today, which is Excalibur number three, which is totally my favorite issue of this lot. It's so much fun. This is going to be the series where we just talk about all the covers. It really is. Because Alan Davis is a fun and fantastic interior artist. But man, his covers are what sold me on Excalibur. We are stopping one issue shy of my favorite Alan Davis cover of all time this episode, alas. But But this this one's one's good. good. Specifically, it is Captain Britain sort of looking confused, pounded into the ground with big footprints going past him as the juggernaut has walked over him, just sort of saying to himself, and there's more where that came from. You know, one of the things I like, I mentioned sort of the Pratt Falls, I like that Captain Britain is the character on the team who takes them, who is most often the butt of the jokes, because he is the one who is in the position of the most power and privilege, and he is the one whom... Claremont and Davis just consistently bowl over. He's also almost indestructible, which helps with that, too. He is. And again, that's part of what makes Excalibur work, is that there are a lot of pratfalls and not a lot of serious damage. You know, there's certainly some really dark stuff later on, like a Nazi Excalibur. Ugh, that's terrifying. So what's going on in this issue is that there is a prison break going on. There's a prison called Crossmore, which is the Royal High Security Prison, which I'm assuming is a real place. I don't know. I live in America. I don't know anything about British prisons. But Vixen and her troops, you know, the two henchmen that she always matches with and some random soldier dudes. They're in matching outfits again, but this time they're all covered in arrows pointing up. You know, because... Why not? I'm sure there's a reason. But yeah, they're breaking into this place. It turns out it's a trap. Crossmore has set itself up to entrap Vixen and her henchmen. So what does she do? She wanders around very quickly until she finds the nearest very dangerous person, who turns out to be Juggernaut, and tries to make a deal with him. You know, I just recapped the X-Men Evolution episode with Juggernaut, and Juggernaut just doesn't really do deal-making. Like, he wants to get out, but he's not really very good at minioning. He's not really interested. Like, he just kind of wants to cheerfully maraud. And that, in fact, is the deal that Vixen smartly makes with him. Just cause a bunch of chaos so we can get away. And indeed he does, and all the other prisoners are breaking out at the same time. And of course, if a crime is being committed in England, especially a super crime, who would show up but Excalibur? The first thing we see is Captain Britain off to confront the Juggernaut really ineffectually. You know, he attacks Juggernaut, and Juggernaut responds, Nice punch. Cute suit. You the local good guy? 
I'm Captain Britain. Figures. Pleased to meet ya. This is as far as you go, Juggernaut. Do tell. You've done enough damage, so why not be sensible for once and save us both any grief by calling it quits and returning to your cell? Make me. You're determined to be difficult. Nope. It's just I got places to go and things to do, pal. You want to get in my way? That's your problem. And honestly, if you want just a bit of dialogue that sums up Juggernaut completely, you just got it. And man, this art. So the last three panels of this page are all from very, very far away from this prison. And you just see Juggernaut's dialogue coming from one corner and hit, 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 pow. And Captain Britain flying like seriously six miles from the prison into the foreground. And it's this wonderful comic timing in an action scene, which is something Excalibur consistently excels at. You tried, kiddo. While Captain Britain is ineffectually attempting to stall the Juggernaut, Kitty is bored. She is hanging out, rubbing Lockheed's belly, and waiting for a car of prison escapees to come by so she can phase them out of the vehicle and use Lockheed to uh, intimidate them into compliance. Unfortunately, she then has to ask one of them to drive back to the prison because she is 14 and she cannot yet drive stick shift. But she's got the dragon, so presumably that's going to work out okay. Superheroes, ladies and gents. And yeah, so there's just this big fight scene as they all go after Juggernaut in various ways. Kurt is taking out his own batch of escapees, and Megan is very worried about Captain Britain, who is obviously losing his fight. She shows up because of how she works. She's, again, an empathic shapeshifter. She does what the situation requires, and she gets enormous and burly, and she is about to attack Juggernaut when Kitty grabs her and phases her through and is like, nope, we don't need to do that. Brian was doing his job, which was being invulnerable and stalling him, and now we're going to end the fight the easy way. And Rachel appears. Hi, I'm Phoenix. Guess what I do? Oh, no. Oh, yes. And Rachel totally puts the psychic whammy on Juggernaut, who, BT dubs, has not been wearing his psychic-proof helmet this entire time because he just got out of jail. And I love the fact that the book's like, look, we know how the fight's going to end, Juggernaut's going to get the psychic whammy, and that's going to be the end of the fight, so let's just do that and let's just have fun with it. The real challenge, though, is yet to come, and that is that today, Excalibur is moving into the lighthouse. Yeah, Kitty hates moving so much, and I love that Kurt's trying to cheer her up. Life can be tough, but things might not turn out as badly as you think. You're right. They'll probably be worse. Like, every line of this is quotable. I just wanted to write everything down in my notes as we were going through. Oh, Kitty Pride, super teenager. Kitty keeps being all dour about it. In fact, she uh, gets a cold during all this because of course she does. It's damp, it's dreary, it's cold. The view stinks. There is nothing to do, nowhere to go. We might as well be in prison. Heck, the Juggernaut probably has better accommodations at Crossmore. <laughs> and as they're moving in, things just get worse because Captain Britain inadvertently drops a box of Kitty's stuff, a box that happens to contain hard drives with all the programs that she wrote with Doug Ramsey when he was alive. Yeah, so everyone is getting more and more tense and more and more stir-crazy. There's a storm going on and it's continuing for days. Nightcrawler is literally bouncing off the walls because he can do that. Brian can't sleep, and once again, because Brian Braddock wanting to use his house and it being full of people is the joke that just never dies. You know, him knocking on the door of the bathroom, having Kitty say, there was a schedule, you slept through your spot, I'm in the tub, fuck off. And just when it seems like things can't get any more annoying, there's a fire in the basement because Megan and Lockheed were trying to make a hot toddy for the sick Kitty and set a bunch of boxes on fire. And Brian is furious, and he's really furious because of the boxes that the fire is near. Rachel shows up and dumps them straight into the ocean. He asks, do you have the slightest notion? What I just did? Absolutely. I threw away your whiskey. I'm not sure I like your tone. 
Fine. I'm positive I don't like your drinking. Don't fuck with the cosmic force, Brian. Also, she's right. Yeah, she is. And the rest of Excalibur's like, yeah, we're kind of worried about it, too. And so he just says, screw it, and flies the hell away. Which, I gotta say, flying off in a huff is probably more effective than, like, in this case, unmooring the boat and sailing through the stormy seas off in a huff. Yeah, if you're going to flounce, being able to do an aerial flounce definitely ups the ante. I feel like the aerial flounce should be some kind of a figure skating move. Like, you can follow up your triple locks with an aerial flounce. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it should be a move in everything. So Brian flounces up, I guess, and Megan's really sad because she just wants to be enough for Brian. She wants him to turn to her, and as she gets sadder and sadder about this, about her dependency on Brian Braddock, which will be addressed as the series goes on, she just sort of regresses into this more monstrous little girl-looking form, very different than her glamorous usual form. Well, very close to her original form. Yeah, uh, not furry. And Kurt, of course, is the one to comfort her because a book like this needs a love triangle, and this right here is where this one starts. As they are drowning their angst in unresolved sexual tension, Phoenix heads upstairs to tell Kitty that while Brian is being a jerk, Kitty also is, and Kitty kind of needs to get her act together too, because while it is difficult, it's a communal living situation, and she is really not making it any easier. Kitty decides, okay, you know, she'll deal, but just then there's a power outage. Kitty heads downstairs to try to find the generator, and sees at first what she thinks is her reflection in a mirror, but it is not. It is another kitty. It is an amphibious-looking kitty with red hair, who is just as surprised to see human kitty as human kitty is to see her. But as soon as anyone else comes down, the basement's back to normal. Now, where Brian flounced off to was, of course, London, which is, I guess, where you go in England. If you're Brian Braddock, when you flounce, you flounce to the lighthouse if you're in London, and if you're at the lighthouse, you flounce to see Courtney Ross. And that's what he does and just sort of talks to her because they're buds. I mean, they used to be lovers, yes, but right now they're just friends. And the way Claremont writes this works. I really buy it. And she asks him if maybe he should just give up this whole superheroing life, give up this whole superheroing team, just live his own life. I tried that way once, and my sister was maimed as a result. If I remained true to my responsibilities, Betsy wouldn't have joined the X-Men and died with them. And he just basically feels trapped. He feels like there's this duty that he has and everything's going to go wrong if he runs away from it, but he also resents it at the same time. Courtney, you don't understand. I know the duties imposed on me better than anyone, but that's the point. They were imposed. I enjoy that Brian is the focal character of this book because, think about it, this is an American book, and two of the main characters were really only seen, with the exception of the occasional annual, in British-only books at this point. Like, I don't think you could really get the Marvel UK Captain Britain stuff over in the States. And so establishing him as, if not the focal character, certainly a focal character, good call on Claremont's part. Well, he's not the main character, but he's the character who propels a lot of the story. He is the central character around whom a lot of especially the early plot revolves. Yep. So he can't angst for too long because Rachel Summers calls him back, says, hey, something weird happened at the lighthouse. We got to check this out. And Courtney points out, well, this is the choice you were saying you didn't have. You don't have to go. You're being offered this. And he says, well, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to go superhero. And so he comes back to hear Kitty's story about the weird things she saw. Like you said before, Jay, they can't see this strange other kitty again, but they do decide we should really reconcile, we should really learn to live together, learn to be a team, we can make this work. And Kurt, of course, is the heart of the team, and so, if everyone is willing, Kameraden, I suggest we put these trials and tribulations behind us, and give our new home and new fellowship the decent chance they both deserve. Are you with me, Excalibur? Aw, oh, hell yeah. 
And so that's how we end our sort of first mini arc of Excalibur with the team once again rededicating themselves to actually being a team, to actually being superheroes, and to maybe having fun along the way, a rarity in the Marvel Universe and especially the X-Men Universe. With that, you've got questions. Mega Garlock asks on Tumblr, In the Dark Phoenix saga, Kitty Pride accidentally phases through her room's floor. Does that mean she could accidentally phase through the Earth forever? Uh, sort of. I mean, normally Kitty can't really be out of it enough to accidentally phase for very long. Being at least somewhat solid seems to be an autonomic function, like how you can't forget to breathe while you sleep, or maybe a reflex like when you catch yourself when you trip. When she's stuck in a fully phased state, she does have to be in a containment chamber or suit sometimes. Uh, We see that after the mutant massacre, and we see it much, much later on in X-Men after she comes back from apparently dying after the Breakworld arc. Yeah. But there is one point during the God Loves Man Kills 2 storyline in Extreme X-Men when Reverend Stryker messes Kitty up so bad that not only does she stay phased while unconscious, but she's so phased that she's not even connected to the Earth's gravitational field, and thus the Earth's orbit kind of like pulls it away from her very, very, very fast and almost goes past her, leaving her stranded in space forever. So, short version, under normal circumstances, that can't happen for more than briefly, but under abnormal circumstances, it totally can. The Jack of Spades asks on Tumblr, Sergeant Terry Jeffords of the Brooklyn Nine-Nine is hosting a Marvel-themed birthday party for his daughters. He has invited the entire squad, but they must dress up as Marvel characters. Who do they show up as? Jack of Spades, you're kind of my arch-nemesis right now. I spent like two hours on this, because here's the thing. You can do which character is analogous to which other character questions pretty easily. But this one is more complicated, because it's not just the analogies. This is which X-Men would the Brooklyn Nine-Nine squad dress up as? And I went with X-Men rather than the larger Marvel Universe, because obviously we are a specialized podcast. So after extensive thought, and I should say also consultation from Max of Waiting for the Trade, who is good at finding good juncture points between sitcoms and superheroes, here are the costumes they show up as. I should say, for those of you unfamiliar, I'm not going to go into all of the characters in detail. I will say that Terry's daughters, who are mentioned in the question, are toddlers. So this is a pertinent factor as well. So it's not only which X-Men they would dress up as, but which X-Men they would consider appropriate to dress up as at a party for small children. That's relevant. Diaz is Wolverine. Note that I did not say Diaz dresses as Wolverine. Diaz is Wolverine. The end. Case closed. Boyle comes dressed as Rogue and does the cartoon accent for the entire party. Hey, my kind of guy. Terry dresses as Colossus. However, he fails to entirely account for the silver paint, which is a running problem, but he looks amazing. He is throughout the party in that in said Colossus costume, which, as you may recall, is aside from the silver paint, somewhat minimal, hit on by Gina, who is dressed as Dark Phoenix. Now, I'm going to get a lot of, but wait, wouldn't Gina dress as Dazzler? No, Gina would not dress as Dazzler. If Gina were an X-Man, Gina would be Dazzler. But given the choice between dressing as the cool dancer on roller skates and the planet-eating cosmic force, Gina will go for the cosmic force. Gina is Dark Phoenix. Of the lineup, Santiago has put the second most thought into her costume. Santiago has thought long and hard about this. Santiago has read a lot of marvel.wikia.com. She has worried really hard, which should give you a hint as to which X-Man she will end up dressed up as, which is the one who most directly reflects her own aspirations and her anticipation of what Holt will dress as. Santiago is Cyclops, and that is because he is probably the most uptight and organized X-Men, and also because he is the teacher's favorite and heir apparent, and she is expecting Holt to dress up as Xavier. Because she's not a hardcore X-Men fan, she's going to get some critical detail very slightly wrong, and that is going to get her in trouble for reasons I'm going to get to in a moment. 
Jake Peralta will come dressed as Cable. He will specifically come dressed as 90s Cable with pouches and with all of Cable's guns. And he will get yelled at for that a lot because he is at a birthday party for toddlers. At some point, Boyle will comment in full rogue accent that this is somehow a themed couple's costume with Santiago. They will both be abjectly horrified at the prospect, not only of doing a couple's costume, but of the fact that there are really creepy, incestuous implications there. Boyle will try to explain and only make it worse. Hitchcock and Scully will show up as X-Files characters. Which ones? I don't know. I'm going to go ahead and say probably crappy ones, like Crycheck or something. Hey, Crycheck's great. I mean, he's terrible, but he's great. Or they'll come as Mulder and Scully, but like, Hitchcock will be Scully and Scully will be Mulder. I, I don't know. Now, that brings me to Captain Holt. Captain Holt was the really difficult one. Because the more I thought about it, the more I realized that Captain Holt would probably be really really into X-Men. That of the characters of the 9-9, the one who is most likely to actually know his shit on this front is Captain Raymond Holt. Because from what we've seen of him, you know, Captain Holt is a precise and exacting and detail-oriented man. He is also a character to whom the outsider motifs of X-Men, the idea of fighting to protect a world that hates and fears them, to find and create and carve out a place in a system that discriminates aggressively against them would consistently appeal, but I feel like he'd also really be super, super into the super detailed continuity, that he would nitpick the hell out of everyone else's costume. And after thinking about that, I tried to think of a character who he would come dressed as, who would appeal to his sensibilities. And I decided that Captain Holt would be at the party dressed up as Lucas Bishop, specifically, though, as Lucas Bishop at the beginning of Age of Apocalypse, when he doesn't have any guns on him, because Holt is aware that this is a children's birthday party, and he would spend a gratuitously long time explaining exactly why he made that choice and the continuity implications thereof, while also, you know, reaming out Peralta for not going with an unarmed version of Cable, because really he could have gone with the Ascani version, who was largely unarmed. There are many options. And that is my answer to your question, and what I spent way too much of today thinking about. I hope you're happy in the life that you have chosen for yourself, Jack of Spades. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, come for the X-Men continuity, stay for the incredibly detailed overlap of multiple pop culture properties. I will say, this is not an official art challenge, but if anyone wants to draw this costume party, man, would I love to see it in action. You gotta have, like, silver smears all over everything. From the Colossus paint? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On that note, um, we are a listener-supported podcast because God knows no legitimate business would pay for this nonsense. And some of those tiers of support on Patreon come with acknowledgement on the show from a variety of fictional characters and different motifs. And today, I believe, appropriate to Excalibur, I am turning things over to Sexy Nightcrawler. Such a wonderful bed Brian and Megan have, and such a woefully unhealthy relationship. Ah, well, there are others to woo... Isn't that so, Eli Swihart? Right, the Black Fedora? Romance is as much an art as mastery of the blade, and just as with the latter, one must choose one's battles. But those eyes, that lovely form, that captivating heart and soul, what are we to do, my friends, in a world so full of beauty?
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, art, recaps, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we hope that you will all come and see us at Emerald City Comic Con, and then tune in for episode 104, where we'll be checking in with Teenage Road Trips, Magneto's X-Men, and A School in Hell, not space, as we talk about the 2016 State of the X-Union. Music